All right, um, enough of that. My name is Josh. Um, if you got a Bible, we will be in Nehemiah chapter 2, kind of towards the end of that in chapter 3. And today we get to one of those sections in Scripture where you get to it and you read through it really quickly. Um, and not because it's short, um, but because it's a long list of a lot of names. You kind of get through it and, and you're reading, okay, and, and this happened and this and this and them and them and them and them and like seven out of time, ten times when you're reading scripture and I get to a section like that, I just, I just blaze through it. And uh, I'm not saying that's the way it should be, but I'm just being honest here. And so we're going to take a little bit of time today. We're going to look at the text. We're going to look at what is happening in the text. We're going to look at uh, why it was happening. And then we're going to ask the question, why should I care uh, some 2,500 years after this? So that's what we're going to do today. We've got, uh, we've got a lot ahead of us here. I, I think it's a really important word. I think it's a good word. Um, so let's pray and then we'll, we'll just dive right in. So Lord, um, thank you that your scripture tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is breathed by you. And that includes long sections like this where it's uh, just a, a list of activities. And uh, God, we can look at that and we can say, huh, what was going on? Why was it happening? And, and what do you have for me? And God, you have something for us this morning. And so, God, I, I pray that we would take some time here this morning to, to just breathe a bit, uh, to pause from the hustle and bustle of life and to look at your word and, and really ask you, God, what are you doing in my life? What do you have for me? And how can I obey you? So it's with this that we pray, Jesus, all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. So the first thing I just want to ask is what's going on in the text? Um, in order to know what's going on in, in Nehemiah chapter 2 and 3, you, you have to know the book of Ezra, and that's kind of where Pastor Mike, over the last month, kind of the first part of every sermon for five, ten minutes, he's really been summarizing the book of Ezra. We've been talking about Nehemiah, but he, he really has been summarizing the book of Ezra. And so what happens in the book of Ezra is, is basically you've got this group of people, the Israelites, who are rebuilding this, this city, the city of Jerusalem. It's a very important city. If you remember your history a bit, you know that uh, the, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, uh, were uh, people that were kind of formed uh, about a thousand years before this moment that we're talking about right now, primarily out of the exodus under Moses. They were in slavery, and, and God brings them out under the leadership of Moses to, to create really a culture, uh, a people, a city. So they, they kind of built this city of Jerusalem. Within the city, they had a magnificent temple with Solomon kind of leading the charge there. And what was very unique and special about this temple is that's where the presence of God was. So it's kind of a really big deal. Well, fast forward about 500 years after Solomon built this temple, and uh, the people of God kind of go through this long period of obeying God and disobeying him, obeying him and disobeying him. And, uh, and God says, basically, um, in Ezekiel, he says, because you are not following me, because you are not obeying me, I am going to leave the presence of the temple. So God leaves in kind of this dramatic scene. So the presence of God leaves the temple, and, uh, and you get this, this really um, conquering Babylon coming in, destroying the city, exiling all the people out of Jerusalem, taking them to Babylon a few hundred miles away. And so now they're under captivity. They're in Babylon, which is, which is not where you want to be because you're not a people anymore. You don't have a culture. You don't have a place that kind of distinguishes who you are from who you aren't. Um, but they're under the rule of Babylon. They're under the rule for about 48 years. And in the 48th year, another empire comes in, the Persians, 
They conquer the Babylonians, and under new Persian rule, Cyrus, the king of Persia, makes this really fantastic um, decree, which is really spectacular because he's not a God follower. He's not a Christian, but God uses a pagan king. You can read about this. Uh, You can read about it in uh, Ezra, in the very beginning of Ezra. And uh, Cyrus says, uh, I have been called by God to send you back to rebuild your city. Again, there's, I mean, I could preach a couple sermons on the significance of that. You can go back and, and look at Isaiah 44, Isaiah 45, and hundreds of years before Cyrus is even a known name, God, uh, God tells his people through Isaiah that he is going to, through the hand and work of Cyrus, rebuild this city. So it's pretty significant. You can also read about that in Jeremiah chapter 25. And so um, they go back, the Jews go back, they make this 900-mile trek. Anyone here ever hiked 900 miles? No, no PCT hikers in here. No, all right. So they make this 900-mile trek. It takes them about four months. There's about 42,000 of them who go from Susa, which is the capital of Persia, all the way back to Jerusalem. They find it in absolute rubble because the Babylonians had destroyed it. And so their efforts now under kind of the leadership of a guy named Zerubbabel, you may have heard Pastor Mike talk about him, they're rebuilding. And so they go back, everything's in rubble, and they're focusing on their homes. They've got to rebuild their homes, and they've got to rebuild the temple. Now, under this, uh, this new charge, there's constant opposition. And under this opposition, there's also constant change in administration and in, in offices of who's leading and, and whether they are allowed to rebuild or not. And so this may not seem important, but it is because you've got under Zerubbabel this charge of go rebuild. You get a blank check from the government saying, this is important, go do it. And then the next king rises and says, absolutely, you cannot rebuild. Don't try to create your own culture. Don't try to create your own temple. Don't try to create your own worship. And you get this back and forth for years. And you see a lot of oppression. You see um, just a lot of tension between the people groups around this area of Jerusalem. Now, um, it takes about 20 years, but finally the people rebuild the temple. Uh, it's nowhere near the magnificence that it was under, uh, under Solomon, but it's, it's a rebuilt temple. It's a beautiful temple. And you can see in Ezra, there's this really dramatic, like, interesting scene where the younger generation in the completion of the temple, they're cheering, they're clapping, and the older generation who had seen the previous temple and its glory, they are weeping and crying because it was nowhere near as glorious as the original temple. But the temple is built. It's kind of this apex moment for the people of Jerusalem, the people of Israel, and everyone's excited. Okay, the temple is built. It took 20 years. Am I going fast enough? Yes. Okay. After 90 years, the walls were not done. All right, 90 years later, the walls had been started, but because of opposition, uh, the walls, just the foundations were laid, the walls were not built. And so we get this scene where Nehemiah, um, he, he's hearing about the temple. We're going to read about this in a minute, but he hears that the walls are not rebuilt. And it's a, it's a major problem for the city. Now, how many of you have ever started something and didn't finish it? All right, how many of you have a spouse who's really good at that? Uh, <laughs> careful, careful, careful. Um, I, I remember the first time, I was thinking about, uh, kind of this week, I was thinking about, okay, um, uncompleted projects and, and walls, because it was talking about walls. And, and in the city that I grew up in, uh, kind of near my high school, there was this house uh, that started building this beautiful fence. And and it happened, I don't know, when I was in early high school, middle school, somewhere in there, and they had all these beautiful, like, big 
eight by eight cement pillars and it had this nice pea gravel finish to it. But they never finished it all of high school. And, and 20 years later, it's still not completed. I can go visit and I can drive by and it's still not done. I actually took a picture. I went on Google Earth and just snapped a picture. And for that's, that's it's been sitting like that for 25 years. I don't know what kind of tension was going on there between husband and wife. But um, you get this picture. Thank you. Let's hit those lights. You get this picture uh, in Nehemiah where very much like that, you've got this, this city where the walls are not completed. And it's, it really crushes uh, Nehemiah. So here's, here's the exchange that Nehemiah has with his brothers. His brothers were in Jerusalem. They'd seen this. They came back to Susa where Nehemiah was, and we get this conversation in Nehemiah chapter 1. And these are the words of Nehemiah. He says, And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. So again, this is devastating to Nehemiah. Uh, this city is, is, is not protected. Um, its walls are broken. Its gates are destroyed by fire. And so Nehemiah goes into this, this period where he's praying and he's fasting. And he's a cupbearer before the king. So he's got a decent relationship with the king. And he goes before the king and the king recognizes, hey man, what's wrong? Your face, it's sad. And, and he tells him about the city. And so the king says, go, rebuild it. Go leave here. Go rebuild the walls. And so that's what Nehemiah does. He goes to the 900-mile trek back to Jerusalem. He kind of incognito goes to the city, checks it out, and then gets this rallying moment where he gathers the city. He gathers the city officials. He gathers the people. And these are the words that we're going to read today. We're going to pick it up right where Pastor Mike left off in chapter 2, verse 17. I'm going to ask that we stand, and I'm going to read the Word of God together and give it the honor that it deserves. So here's Nehemiah's words. Uh, He's back in Jerusalem. The city walls are in shambles. The city is gathered, and here is the words of Nehemiah. And I'm going to read it from right here. This is Nehemiah chapter 2. But now I said to them, you know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. Then I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king. They replied at once, yes, let's rebuild the wall. So they began the good work. I'm going to jump ahead to chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, We're not going to read the entirety of chapter 3, but I'm going to start here. Then Elizabeth, the high priest, and the other priests started to rebuild at the sheep gate. And they dedicated it and set up its doors building the wall as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and the Tower of Hananel. People from the town of Jericho worked next to them, and beyond them was Zachar, son of Imri. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may take a seat. If I were to continue reading all of chapter 3, we would read, um, and this person built, 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 And I'd read that about 40 to 41 times. I'd read about uh, 10 different gate locations. And and really there's this this scene where Nehemiah goes around the city. Now, Laura, would you throw that picture up of the city? Um, I know it's not a great picture from where you're seated, 
Um, but this is the city, and in Nehemiah chapter 3, he basically starts on one end, and he goes all the way around the city, and he describes each section of the wall that's built and each gate that's being built. Um, you know, I don't know when, what your mind thinks of when you think about, okay, there's a city and, and this wall, um, but in my mind, I, I used to think it's, it's much bigger, but it's actually not very big. Um, there's, I don't know, some 40, 50 houses perhaps in here, and maybe it was a section about as big as like our campus here, maybe all the way to like 35th Street, somewhere right in here. So it's not a huge area, but Nehemiah is going all the way around this wall, and he's describing the different people who are working on the wall. Um, the first thing I want to point out in this description, thank you, Laura, um, is that as Nehemiah presents this idea to everyone, um, what is the response of the people? We see this in chapter 2, verse 18. This is what the people they say, say. They say, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hand for the good work. The first thing that we see that when Nehemiah is going back to rebuild the city of God is that every single person has a part to play. Everyone rallies together. From the top leading official down to the smallest of children, everyone has a part to play. Now, now imagine if you're hearing this for the first time. Now, these names don't mean anything to us because we don't know who they are. Um, but if you're reading this for the first time, you'd be saying, oh yeah, that's, that's my brother, and, and that's my neighbor, and that's my friend I went to middle school with, and, and all these different names of people. But, but we see a few particular names. The first one we see in verse 1. We see this. It says, Then Elisabib, the high priest, and his brothers, the priests. The modern equivalent of that is, is your, your top leaders. And obviously this is like a religious setting. So you've got your pastors, you've got your elders. They're getting their hands dirty. Uh, on every level of leadership, if you're to be a good leader, you need to be um, willing to do the things that you ask your people to do. And that's something that we have a high commitment towards here at Northwest Hills. Um, maybe this last week or the week before, you also got a, a letter talking about one of our uh, newest elder members, and that's, uh, that's Will Outland. Now, he's not here today. He'd probably be super embarrassed if I said this, but he's not here, so I can say it. I, I love Will, and here's why I love him. He's willing to get his hands dirty. He's been uh, serving in middle school. He's been serving in high school. He's been serving for years. He's not someone who sits back and says, oh, that's, that's for other people to do. He's someone who says, you know what, I'm going to be involved. And so as a leadership team here at church, we never want to ask people to do things that we ourselves are not willing to do. That's super important. And we see this picture very clear in Nehemiah. The high priest and his brothers, the priests, they're the ones digging. But then who else do we see? We see all kinds of different people. Um, I, I love uh, some of the other people we see. This guy, uh, Mr. Uziel, in verse 8. Next to, him, next to them, Uziel, the son of Hananiah, a goldsmith. Now, now these people are, are unique. Jewelers. This is the guy behind the counter at Tiffany's. He's got the pocket square, the monocle. Um, this is the guy who's selling you, you know, that, that brilliant cut, two-carat, perfect VS1 quality diamond. Um, he's working on the gate. I remember the first time that I met a jeweler. Um, I was 20 years old. I was I was about to be engaged to my wife, Megan. And I was just looking around trying to figure out, okay, how do I buy a diamond? How do I buy a ring? What does this look like? And we'd been looking around and I kind of knew, okay, like uh, this is a bit of a process. I got to save some money here. And you know, the, the, the rule of thumb, I don't know what it is now, but a thousand years ago when I got engaged or 15 years ago, whatever it was, um, it, you're supposed to save three months of salary to buy a ring. Well, I was an intern at a church. So that would have been $19. 
So I went to, I went to, uh, I went to, we, we lived in Southern California. We, we lived in this nice area, and I went to this way too, way too nice of store. And I uh, was looking around, and oh, man, this is like super expensive, but I guess this is what you do. And, and so Mr. Uziel, or whatever his name was, um, I told him, okay, I want this one. I'm going to come back later. I'm going to bring some money. I'm going to buy it. And so um, I, I go back home or whatever. Next week I go, I go and I, I've got this big stack of cash in my, in my, uh, my jacket. And I, I literally remember as if it was yesterday. We're at the counter. I'm about to pay for it. He literally rings it up and he says to me, he says, would you like to buy a diamond also? I was like, oh, you know, trying to pull it off. Like, okay, I can do this. Like, whatever. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, I knew that that was just the band. Like, yeah, of course I want to buy a diamond too. And, and I'm like, well, show me what your diamond is. He's like, oh, oh yeah, here's, here's, and I, I asked him, I said, well, well, what, like the diamond that was in it, like the size, like what would that cost? Like kind of, and he's like, oh yeah, those, like the, the lower quality, they start around 15,000. Um, well, I'm going to, I'm going to have to go work for like seven more years. I'll be back. Um, but Mr. Uziel, man, those jewelers. The next guy we see building on the wall, uh, I love this as well, is, uh, is in verse 9 here. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers. This is the guy who's probably got a little makeup on. He's at the counter behind Neiman Marcus or Macy's or Nordstrom's when you walk in, and they're trying to spray you with, like, the newest Chloe whatever or the newest Man Panther. It's like, hey, try this. It's going to make your day great. Um, you've got just the whole collection of people working on the wall. My absolute favorite, though, is in verse 12. Verse 12, and here's why, if you know me, we read this. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. He and his daughters. So I love to think that here's, here's like a pretty well-to-do, like, you know, he's a governor of half the district of Jerusalem. He's there working with his daughters. And I'd like to think that his daughters are like two, four, and six. And so he's literally building and it's it's actually really miserable for him because like every time he digs like they're refilling the hole and he's just going like okay I've got to be a good dad I got to train them I got to teach them but good night I could do this so much faster myself but he took the love and logic class and he's like I can do this I can teach my kids it's going to pay for itself later but here he is in his sweet little girls building the wall from the top king to the smallest of kids, everyone's got a part to play in the kingdom of God. And I love that. I love that Nehemiah describes every person as he goes around. And like I said earlier, the simple question is, what is your part to play in building the kingdom of God? And everyone has a part. We all do. That's just the fact of the matter. And, and, and we sit in a very diverse group like this with, with young and old and, and all different types of people. And here's the thing. God says that each one of us have something unique that we have to offer the kingdom of God. I was talking to a good friend of mine um, the other day. I, I was actually at Big Five. I was in the parking lot, and I saw some friends in there. I was talking to him in the parking lot, and, uh, and he was telling me, he's, he's like, man, I'm, I'm super frustrated. I've got a bunch of friends. He's like, I'm in a Bible study with like 12 other dudes. This guy's my age. And he says, we're all in Bible study together, yet none of them will go to church. It's just so much easier on Sunday to wake up and, and have a mimosa and go get some, you know, lovely omelet, whatever, because it's Sunday and I can. And, and it's so funny because we were talking about a conversation that me and this friend that I was talking to had 10 years ago. And this was like, Greg, that was you. Like, 
we had this conversation where I had to call him out and say, hey, Greg, 10 years ago, this is a conversation you and I had. He's like, I know, I know. I said, um, there is a 93-year-old in church on Sunday who is not receiving the gifts that you have because you're not going. See, my friend is su- he's a super gifted musician. He's a really good worship leader. And that was super convicting for him. And so he's been like trying with everything he can. He's like, guys, like you have something to offer the church. Like, I know it's great that you're here with your friends, but man, everyone has something to offer. Now, now I understand we've got different gifts and some is inside the church, some's outside the church. And that's a good thing, but, but everyone has something unique that God has gifted you with. And we got to ask yourself, God, what have you gifted me with? All hands on deck when it comes to building the kingdom of God. Next question, and this is where things are going to get fun here. Um, why did Nehemiah rebuild the walls and the gates? Why did he do that? Um, to answer this, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump into the deep end of the pool, um, and I'm going to ask another question. I'm going to ask, what are walls and gates? And now, now here's where, like, I love to feel this tension, and it's okay. Like, we, I, I think it's ironic I think it's interesting. I think we need to be honest about where we are as a country. Like here we are talking about, our whole study is about a book that is literally building a wall around a country and we are more divided than ever in our country about building a wall. And I'm about to say some things that are not political at all. I promise you. I promise you. I I am not devoted to any political party. I am for the kingdom of God. You can email me on that. I don't care. Um... But we need to be able to talk about what walls are. Because for Nehemiah, they were very important. And for us, they are very, very important. So at its fundamental level, and I'm talking physical, I'm talking material, and I'm talking immaterial. And we're going to do a lot of crossover here, so you've got to hang with me. What is a wall, and why was it important to Nehemiah? A wall is a perimeter. It's a boundary. It's a law. It defines um, it defines order. It's a rule. A, a, a wall is a law, like, um, uh, like, like theft, like stealing. Um, that, is a, that is a wall. If you steal something, you'll be persecuted, or you'll be prosecuted, and then you'll be punished. I don't know if you'll be persecuted, maybe. Um, a, a wall is also like a uniform. Like today, a lot of us are going to watch a football game. Uh, there'll be two different teams on the field, each wearing different uniforms, and that is a wall. That's something that defines something. Um, There will be, I believe the number is seven. I think there's seven officials on a field in white and black striped uniforms, and every time a wall is crossed, they will blow a whistle. And heaven forbid, if a wall is crossed and a whistle doesn't get blown, people freak out. Like, who that? What's going on? Like, there's some serious problems when walls get crossed and whistles aren't blown. People get outraged. A wall may also be literal, right? We have walls to our houses. We have walls around our our properties. We have like a a city uh, limit is a wall. A state line is a wall. A speed limit, again, is a wall. And without walls, there's absolute chaos. There's anarchy. You have no way to define anything without walls. And, And follow me for a minute. The more complex a system is, the more necessary it is to have ultra defined um, walls. What do I mean by this? Like, think about a system as complex as a government, or like the United States. Like, we, the the United States is a very complex system. So we have all kinds of walls, meaning we have all kinds of laws and litigation, like all kinds of things that 
that say, this is who we are, this is who we're not. And again, the more complex the system is, the more you need very defined walls. Uh, The same is true uh, of culture at large. Like we have a very defined culture in some ways, and cultures need walls. They need barriers. I'm going to do a little example of this. I need a female volunteer. Okay, preferably someone who doesn't know me super well. Female volunteer. Can I, can I bring up Rachel? Rachel, would you come up here? Okay. Rachel is my neighbor. This is her first time in church here this morning. So it's true. This is true. She's a trooper though. So Ellie, you can come up too. Come on up here, Ellie. Ellie goes to school with Charlotte. They're in the same class. I'm totally going to embarrass you, but you're awesome. You can do this. Okay, Rachel, you are a professor up at uh, Western Oregon. Say hi to Rachel. She's awesome. Okay, so let's say I have no idea who Rachel is. Let's say I'm meeting her for the first time ever. And I go right up to you. Oh, whoa, whoa. Thank you. Okay, you proved my point. You can go sit down. Thank you. Like, good to see you, Ellie. Like, we have cultural barriers. Like, when you get in someone's bubble, that's super awkward and really weird. And, like, bringing someone up on stage for the first time is really weird and awkward, too, right? Like, I just broke so many cultural walls in that moment. And you had no idea you were doing that, but you're awesome. So, that's okay. Um, Culture has rules and laws, and one of them is, like, our space. And we like our space. When I sit down in a chair, I don't want to sit next to anyone. I want, like, two chairs and my wife. Like, that's good. Um, telling you, the more simple a system is, the less necessary walls are. Like, think about something that's the most simple of any complex system, the simplest of a system, um, something like a shape, right? A rectangle or a triangle. How do you differentiate between a rectangle and a triangle? Like, you just take out one more wall, right? If you got three walls, it's a triangle, very simple. If you have four walls, it's a rectangle, right? Welcome to first grade or kindergarten or preschool, whatever. The more complex a system, the more necessary, ultra-defined walls and barriers are, the more simple a system, um, you need very, um, very few amount of walls. And again, whether it's a real actual law or whether it's uh, kind of that cultural law, you need a lot of different rules and laws. Um, I remember the first time I went to uh, Africa, and they're talking about some of these different walls that we have that we may or may not know about until you go to another country. Um, And then I went to, my wife and I were in Ethiopia in 2002 for about six weeks. And uh, they were telling us in Ethiopia, like it's not uncommon for a guy to come up and grab your hand and just walk hand in hand with you. Now that was very unique for me. but then they'd also say, and, and, uh, and the guy is not, not just going to, like, manhand hug you, but, like, interlock fingers. And then they say, like, um, guys are very comfortable sitting on each other's laps, too. Like, oh, wow. Like, I'm, I, I was trying to promote, like, my girlfriend sitting on my lap, Megan, at the time. That would have been great. But no, no, guys are sitting on guys' laps. And again... We have all kinds of different walls, different barriers. Every culture has them. Every community has them. Now, here's where things get tricky. Depending upon if you are kind of left-brained or right-brained, we see and experience walls very differently. We view them differently. Now, follow me for just a minute here. Um, If you're left-brained, left-brained is more logical, right? You're more orderly, 
Order is very, very important for someone who's left brain. You're more factual, you're more kind of engineering type. Raise your hand if you're more left brain in here. Yeah, quite a few of you, okay? Um, if you are right brain, you are more, uh, thought idea out there is like you're more progressive, you are more intuitive, you're more visual, you're more of an entrepreneur. You, you want to go through a gate. Here's where we start talking about gates. You want to go through a gate, you want to observe something, and you want to actually move the wall. You're, you're very okay with the wall, but it's never in the right spot. So you're always trying to move it, okay? And this is just reality. I'm just saying, this is the world that we live in. So, so left brains want very defined walls because ultimately on the inside, you want order. Orderliness is very important for the left brain. It's not so much out of fear of the outside, out of the unknown, as much as it is for a desire for the inside to be orderly. That's very important. But again, for the right brain, they're going like, order isn't that important. What I want is progress. I want something different. I want something unique. I want something new. And hear me very, very carefully. For a system to work properly, you need both. You need to have very well-defined borders and you need to have order, but you also need uh, people who are willing to push outside of that and say, you know what, this is good, but it could be better. You know, you need someone who says, what are the risks? And you need someone to say, what are the opportunities? And for a culture to work well, you need both. Um, Think about this. Since it's Super Bowl Sunday, I'm going to use another football analogy. Um, I believe the game of football, as we know, it was started in around 1920. Now, in the first game, there were very defined walls. There was very defined order because there was an agreed upon list of rules, which how you play the game. Well, that game that was played in 1920 is nowhere near the game that is played today. Why is that? That's because a bunch of people said, you know what? We like the rules, we like the walls, but let's move them to progress, innovate or die, right? So listen to a few of the changes that have been made over the years. It wasn't until 1943 that helmets were required. So for the first little while, you didn't have to wear a helmet. Uh, In 1962, you could grab face masks. Up until 1966, uh, the field goal posts were in a different area. Up until 1973, you could stand on someone else. You could stand on their shoulders to try to block field goals, which I still think would be pretty sweet. You can launch someone up there. I don't know. Uh, You get some like little dude. (laughs) Um, If you're more defensive line oriented until 1977, within your first step and only the first step, you could smack someone else in the helmet. I thought that was kind of cool. Again, innovate or die. But in every single season, in every single game, you have to have strict walls and borders. But then you evaluate those walls and borders. And you say, hey, is there areas where we can progress? Is there areas that we need to tweak? That's the world that we live in. We live in this tension of protecting our values, but also exploring and expanding on new ideas. And here's the key, again, we need both. So for Nehemiah, for Ezra, why were they building walls? This is super important. Ezra chapter 1. These are the words of Cyrus. He says this in Ezra 1. Again, this is the Persian, not God-fearing pagan king. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. So he's in charge of of literally what would be modern day, like Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and Israel, like superpower of the time. King of Persia is saying this, um, that God has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. 
Going back to Nehemiah chapter 1, here's the words of Nehemiah, who's actually quoting Moses. He says this, But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Cyrus and Nehemiah needed a physical location. It was so important. They had to have walls. They had to have a temple. They had to have a city to ultimately establish a people, to establish a culture. They needed that. It was necessary. If they didn't have that, they wouldn't have an identity. They wouldn't have um, an ideology. They wouldn't have an orthodoxy. They wouldn't have an orthopraxy. They would, everything would be at risk for their country and their people. If they had no location to gather, if they had no place where they could go and they say, this is who we are as a nation, this is who we are as a people, this is our temple, this is where the presence of God is. If they didn't have that, everything would be at risk. Walls were necessary to be able to defend, to be able to define, to be able to say, this is us. Walls are so necessary then. 2,500 years later, why should I care? Right? Life is very different today. Why should I care? I will speak to the Christian and I will speak to those who are seeking. And I'm going to speak to the seeker first. One of the most beautiful things about being a human is we have um, really ridiculous levels of freedom. Um, we're limited. We're finite. Every one of us is going to die. Like we are, like we have to be in one location at once. You know, we're physical, we're material, um, but we have huge levels uh, of autonomy, of choice, and, and that's one of the things that is so beautiful about being human. I love that part about being human. And so uh, what we do in our humanness is we build kingdoms. Every one of us, we're building a sort of kingdom with our life. And we get to make all kinds of different decisions about where we put walls in our kingdom. Right, kind of walls around like, where am I going to live? What am I going to do? What am I not going to do? Who am I going to listen to? Who am I going to let into my kingdom? These are different ways that within the freedom of what it means to be human, we, we make these choices. When it comes to people in our kingdoms, we, we can make a choice. Am I going to be vulnerable with this person? Am I going to share with them my dreams? Am I going to share with them my fears? Am I going to share with them my insecurities? Am I going to share with them my hopes and my dreams? Or am I going to share none of that? We have these choices. We can make these choices as we're building our own kingdoms. Now, the invitation this morning is to join a better kingdom with a better king. And the reality is, the Bible talks a lot about this, and I see this in the day and age that we live in. The nicer your kingdom, the harder it is to say, I want a better kingdom. And quite frankly, like there is a lot of shine to a lot of our kingdoms. And so maybe today you're going, yeah, I, I don't know if I want a different kingdom because I'm enjoying my kingdom. But I don't know, maybe down the road there'll be a time where the things that you thought your kingdom would promise won't deliver. And the invitation then will be join the kingdom of God. It's a much better kingdom. First of all, it's not limited. It's not limited by anything that we're limited by. And it only excludes one thing, and that's what is evil. See, the kingdom of God has very, very thick, very defined walls, and it keeps out all that is evil. But it only has one gate. The kingdom of God only has one gate, and that is by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. 
And to keep all evil out, that means every single one of us, because evil lies in the hearts of men and women. And so no one's getting in this kingdom except through that one gate, but that gate is open through the blood of Jesus, and Jesus has come to me. All who want a better kingdom, because in my kingdom there is hope. In my kingdom there is a future. In my kingdom there is everlasting joy. And the invitation is to come join a better kingdom with a whole lot better king. Lastly, I'll, I'll say a few words to the Christian and then we'll end. To the Christian, you are in the kingdom. It's a very different type of kingdom than Nehemiah lived under. Right? We're not building a physical wall. We're not building a physical Jerusalem. We're not even building a physical temple. Why is that? Because Jesus says, I am the temple. He died, rose again, and God lives in the hearts of men and women now, which is a very, very different kingdom than it was in the Old Testament. But the invitation is still the same, to build the kingdom of God for the, for the Christian who is in the kingdom. And that invitation is very simple. It is go make disciples of all nations. So to build the kingdom is to go. That is the call. And I want to talk specifically to the right brain Christian and then to the left brain Christian. So for the right brain Christian, the one who is constantly on the edge, pushing things, looking for new information, looking for new innovation, first of all, thank you for being you. Without you, our church would die. Because if all you have is thick walls and no entrance and no escape, you have sustain, maintain until everyone's old enough and everyone dies. So thank you for being an innovator. Thank you for being a seeker, an inviter. But perhaps the challenge for you today might be this. Where do you need to shore up on your walls? Where do you need to firm up? Where do you need to make a commitment and actually stick to it? Right? Maybe it would be joining a community group for more than a year. Maybe it would be sticking through with a commitment that you made, like, hey, I want to read the Word of God and I want to be consistent in that. Maybe it would be showing up to church more than once every couple of months when it feels good. Right? For those of you who, who want what's new, exciting, innovative, it's such a good thing for the kingdom. It's so necessary. But what are the areas in your, in your life that you need to firm up? And now for the left brain Christian. Thank you for being you. Right, thank you for bringing order. Our church needs order. We need consistency. But again, the call to build the kingdom is to go. And I think sometimes we can be so comfortable in, oh, I'm, I'm very comfortable in my square. I love order. Don't bring anything in here that's going to create chaos. No, the call is to go. So maybe that for you is maybe go build a new friendship. Maybe step across the street and say hi to someone. Maybe join a new community group. Maybe branch off and, and try something very, very different. Maybe, just maybe, go join the Michelsons up in Washington. They need people up there. That would be very hard for some people who like order. So what would it look like for you, those who love your order, to go try something new and to obey the call to go? The fact of the matter is we are all needed. Left brain, right brain, no brain. We need everyone. We really do need everyone. Nehemiah's call was build the kingdom of God. The call to the New Testament believer is therefore go make disciples. Let's do that. Would you join me? I'm going to pray. We're going to sing one more beautiful song and then we're going to have a great rest of the day. Heavenly Father, thank you for the invitation to join you in a better kingdom with a better king. God, you are such a better king than I am. 
Lord, there are areas in my life where I've got appropriate walls and there are areas in my life that I need to move some walls. God, I I pray that in the church we can respect people who see walls differently. I, I pray that in the church we can be a church that creates order for your kingdom, but that also is constantly pushing the edge to new places and new heights. Jesus, I pray that as I evaluate my life, even today, even during this next song, that I would look at it and I'd say, okay, Lord, where, do, where am I too concerned about order? Where am I too concerned about possible risks? And where do I need to be looking for opportunities? And Lord, where might I shore up my searching for opportunities to bring order? Jesus, we love you and we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.